Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts here this week with co-host Pete Wall and a guest, a man I haven't seen for many, many a year. Uh, film critic Paul Risker is with us today. So uh, Pete, hello. Paul, hello. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, I, I think it would only be right to just skip over me and I'll say, yeah, I'm here as always and pass over to Paul. Paul, maybe you can introduce yourself to people who might not be familiar with your work at this point. Well, I'd like to think everyone's familiar with my work. It's not just a bit of an ego talk in there, you know. Uh, if you don't know me, if you haven't read my work, why not? You know, um, forget your kind of marital duties, you know, childhood duties, kind of interests, whatever they be. Start reading up my work. Um, now, I've kind of um, written for a number of publications, uh, academic and also, you know, blogs and mainstream outlets. Most of the time now, I can be found at Dirty Movies, uh, the Frightfest website, and also Pop Matters. And I also do some work for Miss Unseen, uh, Canadian Film Studies Journal. So that's where most of my work is these days. So, so Paul, just to confirm, this is going <clears> to <throat> underline the fact that we are the uneducated buffoons that we've always seemed like we are <laughs> yeah. on this show, as we bring in a real academic and sort of uh, ruin our own situation. Well, he's he may be an academic, but I can tell you now he's not he's not adverse to the odd Jaeger bomb. When we met, we met a press visit to the TV series of Vikings, um, and we had quite a heavy night uh, thanks to the PRs of the uh, Vikings press visit, Paul. If I remember rightly, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting, Paul. If if you can't compete with the, his uh, academic acumen, then you pull him down to your level by telling everybody that he likes a drink. Exactly. Uh, so, sorry about this introduction, Paul. It's all going to be uh, a lot more highbrow from here on out. But uh, I should introduce the show as ever. Um, we take you on an audio trip through the cinema. We start in the foyer. We move to the popcorn counter. We move into the cinema itself today for a feature review of... Uh, what are we calling it now, Paul? Tanay? According to the according to the the, uh, the American journalist who clearly doesn't understand the concept of the film, apparently Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenet. So we'll get right into that um, at the end, or is it the beginning or the middle of the show? At some point, you'll know it's happening. Uh, whether or not you've been inverted is for you to figure out. But yeah, we'll have a full review of uh, Tenet coming up uh, in not not too much time. But before that, we get into popcorn movies, of course, where we'll review the things that we've seen over recent weeks. Sandwiched in between those two sections, though, we have brought back coming attractions. Last week, we had a little section. This week, we'll go for another little section of coming attractions, because as you all may be aware we're allowed to go back to the cinema now which is rather exciting um, as long as we all do it safely and carefully of course but first up we go into the foyer we talk about film news from the past week or so and Paul you're usually the go-to guy and I should say Paul Anderson how am I going to distinguish who I'm talking to on this show <laughs> Uh, I mean, you can you just kind of nod. I don't know. I mean, you treat me with the level of respect you normally treat me, and then treat the <laughs> guest with some more respect. Does, does that mean? Does that mean pull out the nickname, Paul? Uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> pull out the nickname if it helps. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can describe Paul Risker as uh, Paul the other one. Paul, Paul the academic. <laughs> yeah, Paul the academic. And, and then just regular Paul. Yeah. So, uh, ju just, or, just, or, or you can, or you could just call me Clint, because let's face it, Clint is a cooler name than Paul. Okay, we go. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll go uh, regular regular old Paul at the moment. Uh, 
what's the news this week? What's been going on in film? Because you're um, usually pretty clued up on well, that. Well, Venice is back on. Um, I think it's the first, certainly the first major festival to come back um, in person um, with fairly strict, I think what seems like fairly strict social distancing policies uh, in place until you see everyone up on stage with their arms around each other. They might be wearing a mask, but they are quite close together. Um, but it is pretty big news that a, a major film festival is back on. Um, fingers crossed it doesn't become a hotbed of, of COVID-19 um, because it's, you know, it's it's a, it's a tricky one. Like there was always going to be tricky which film festival went first. It, hopefully they, they won't have it. They won't, it won't be, it won't be um, a factor that they've come too soon. And hopefully it doesn't, it doesn't come out with a, with a hotbed of, of illness as a result of it. But it's, you know, it's quite nice to see things returning to some semblance of normality within film anyway. Um, what do you guys think about this? Any, any thoughts or? Yeah, go. I'll throw to you, Paul. Uh, first up. Well, I kind of just kind of echo what you were saying. You, it's good to see some normality return. You just hope that it goes well because uh, this is what you want. I mean, you want festivals to return. It's that kind of interaction. It's a filmmakers getting the opportunity to actually present their films to an audience. It's a it's a special opportunity. It's for a lot of filmmakers, especially indie filmmakers, this is their opportunity to almost have some kind of a theatrical release and to actually be able to go up on stage, do Q&As, interact with the audience. It's a, it's a real privilege and it's a special occasion. So if anything, just for the kind of camaraderie which you can see you know, take place, at a festival which is special you just hope Venice is a success so that at least we can start to see if not every film festival more film festivals start to get back to that kind of normality yeah absolutely second that I mean I've been um, recently uh, I've renewed my season ticket to go back and watch football for the coming season in not total confidence that I'll actually be going back to watch football because just in the same way as you say Paul the hope is to get back involved to support in this case the club in that case the festival and and filmmaking at large but of course the caveat being we need to do it the right way we need to take the right steps we need to take precautions just like we're doing in cinemas around the country at the moment as well I mean Paul uh, Paul Anderson. I mean, you guys do sound totally different, so I think this will make it easier to distinguish between the two of you. But um, it, it, I want to shoehorn in, Paul, and I'm sure you'll second this, that there are film festivals, of course, going on online at the moment, not least our beloved Exit 6 Festival, um, hosted and organised by friends of the podcast, uh, Mark Brennan and uh, Carl Jam, I want to call him. What's his second name? Carl Austin is involved. He's technical director, amongst others, amongst many, amongst a very talented team of people. Yeah, and and bringing it up for purely self-interest because of the fact that we're involved in, well, you're involved in obviously a a hell of a lot of that festival and I'm involved in some of the Q&A stuff, as are you. So uh, that's something we're seeking out. But I suppose the wider point being, don't feel like there aren't festivals just because you can't see them because a lot of them are available online as well if you do a bit of looking around. Yeah, so Exit 6 is on uh, 26th of September, leading all the way through that week. Um, and yeah, it's a pleasure to welcome Pete to the team this year. So myself and Pete have been hosting Q&As with um, a number of the filmmakers and with the people that have made the short films that have been selected. Um, and that's been a brilliant experience so far. Um, the, I guess the benefit of going online that we've found is it certainly adds a more international flavour to things. There's a lot more filmmakers suddenly available online as they than can come to Basingstoke where it's set. So 
in some ways, yes, we are disappointed. Um, it's not a physical festival this year because ultimately that is is a great event. I love doing the physical event, and the after party is a big part of that. I'm not even I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. Like it, I enjoy it, um, as do the filmmakers seemingly. But in some ways, yeah, it's brought a more international flavour to the festival. So um, yeah, it's great to be a part of it. And Pete, it's great to have you a part of it this year as well. So yeah, man. And just on the thing you said about international flavour, only this week I did a Q and A on a, a film that that will be amongst the. Uh, possibly highlights of the festival with a couple of Iranian guys who have effectively exiled themselves from Iran in order to be able to make the kind of films they want to make. And it's that sort of insight that you only get when you get to sit down with filmmakers and speak to them directly, albeit kind of virtually sitting down over Zoom or whatever platform. So yeah, we're lucky to do it. We're lucky that that is still an option. And hopefully we will get back soon to a regular festival circuit of in-person festivals and in-person after parties as you mentioned paul absolutely Um, yeah what else have we got this week other than plugging our own stuff uh the other news is well covid19 related um robert pattinson has come down with covid19 we were talking we were just talking about can these things be done safely should film well like we haven't really talked about should film production return and how difficult it is to to do socially distant film production i know a number of people who have done it they've said it's it's certainly doable um it's not easy uh but apparently it hasn't worked on the batman so the batman is now shut down um and will i imagine which is a shame for them because that trailer's built up a lot of hype so for for the lead star to get it is probably not a good look for warner brothers um and potentially might make other film productions think twice i, I don't know i'm intrigued to see where this one leads to be honest yeah um the childish part of me has come up with this thought which i'll now share with everyone uh, it wasn't the something in the way that the trailer was uh, hoping for i suppose one of the <laughs> key players in the film being struck down so yeah like like you said paul hopefully that will get back up and running as soon as possible within the confines of all the the precautions that are being taken right now um what else have we got anything more to cover or should we bounce out uh, paul any any film news that jumps out at you this week feel free feel free to jump in yeah no i mean just uh, the batman thing it's as bad as it is and obviously it stalls uh, the you know kind of shooting of the film you almost feel at some point they'll find a way to kind of use it as a kind of as part of a publicity campaign of uh, the challenges which face this uh, particular production of bringing it to the kind of masses but I think the biggest concern is if a big production's going to suffer you know a big production has certain security behind it indie films where they have a restricted budget I'm already perhaps kind of shoot you know the, the schedule doesn't really give them any room to kind of lose days any time whatsoever you just wonder what the impact will be you know on the indie kind of uh, filmmaking circuit what their reaction is going to be to all of this and I think that's kind of going to be the interesting thing because it's you know how there's two sides to the coin there's a big budget films but how is it going to affect, how will it trickle down to affect the smaller ones as well? Well, it's interesting you say that because I'm working on a second film at the moment, uh, which I haven't mentioned on this podcast at all, considering it's about film. I don't know why I haven't brought that up. Uh, my first film's nearly <laughs> finished, so I just wanted to throw that in there finally. So there'll be more to talk about that on a future show. Uh, I won't let Pete review it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, the second film. So basically, where did you say that? So I was we were looking at budgeting the, the second film. This very much a very zero budget 
zero budget film for sure we were looking at budgeting for insurance and i was expecting insurance premiums to go through the roof with the covid situation and it hasn't really changed since the last film that i shot which kind of took me by surprise but i guess i can imagine if you but we i mean the the people that we've got are they they have acted before they are in things that have been on the screen so they're you know they are names um for sure so I'm intrigued to see where this goes. I was genuinely expecting the price of insurance just to skyrocket and be like be like triple, I guess. But then, yeah, it'd be an interesting one to see to see whether this goes. I imagine for a bigger production, I imagine if you've got a very much named cast member, then the insurance to insure them, I imagine there is probably a lot of clauses that are probably going to put sort of put a lot of money on the budget. But I'd be intrigued to see what impact this has um, on on indie filmmaking, and certainly whether this means. Hollywood plays it cautiously and shuts down other productions um, in the meantime. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess we can only really speculate at this point. So, watch this space. We'll come back, circle back to the topic in due course when we see, hopefully, the positive rather than negative future of this particular issue. But for right now, let's get to into a next positive section of the show. That is, of course, popcorn movies right after this. So yeah, this is uh, the section of the show where we talk about, well, Pete and I talk about things we've seen since the last podcast, and uh, other Paul, or Paul Risker, shall we say, has got carte blanche to talk about exactly what he likes. However, as he's, as, as I said, as he's outclassed us on almost every level, he's seen uh, a number of things at Fright Fest. So Paul's going to give us a, a start of a roundup of Fright Fest, which is coverage we can only dream of. Um, so that's good. So um, Paul, as a guest, uh, would you like to go first? Why not? Um... Yeah, there were a few things which really stood out to me at Fryfest, um, and I was guilty of wanting to dismiss a few films, um, look them up kind of, um, and with time being tight, I wasn't going to kind of necessarily give them a lot of time, but I'm kind of really glad I did. And sometimes probably what struck me about these films was just the simplicity. Sometimes simplicity really does work. And one film which stood out to me was a, a Turkish film, A.V. The Hunt. A strong female lead, uh, forced to survive, hunted by a group of men. Really kind of echoes in some ways, I guess, uh, The Hunt and uh, Ready or Not. Just It has those shades. As I say, just very simple but very effective and what's kind of interesting about the film is the way they structure it. And they actually go away from her for a kind of portion of a film. And that's generally a no-no. But I actually, I still was able to kind of stay with it. And it's a way in which they, there's all the things that they do, the way they structure it. It's so interesting. And they, they seem to be breaking certain rules or certain expectations with how you tell that kind of story. And yet it just holds your attention but as I say it's just so simple but effective it's pretty much does what it says on the tin and um, it's a woman who's had some sexual activity with a man it's frowned upon and her family are able to take her out to the woods and kill her of course it doesn't go to plan and she gets away from them and she fights for survival it it's there's nothing kind of grand to it, but it's doing what genre does so well. Takes a very simple concept, takes something uh, very current, a political or social theme, and really just weaves 
thrilling and gripping story around it. But as I say, what struck me was in a Western film, the order of how things evolve would have been very different. And it was just refreshing. Just that little bit of a difference really kind of made an impression on me. And that's one of the films at Fryfest that, you know, kind of really jumped out to me. And that that one, sorry, Paul, that one's called A.V. The Hunt. A.V. The Hunt, yeah. Right. Because it's the kind of thing, isn't it? Once something like that grabs someone's ear listening to you now, well, me for one, you kind of keep it on your radar on the back burner. And then when it is available on wider release, you can jump on it at that point. So it sounds good. Uh, Paul, are we going to go sort of film by film here? What do you want to do? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we'll we'll go film by film, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. I'll jump in. Uh, so another horror, another horror that I wanted to talk about. One I'd read some really quite good things about, actually, um, including uh, Sean Baker, um, director of. Tangerine. Sean Baker likes everything, uh, man. Like- <laughs> Sean Baker does seem to like every. I've noticed that you're right. I've noticed this on Letterbox. He said he, he said it would gar- probably garner some award in, in indie awards come award season. Uh, this is host. Um, it was a Shudder exclusive. Um, it's mercilessly, mercilessly, no, mercifully, I'll get the words right, uh, 57 minutes long. This is a, yeah, it's a seance basically shot on Zoom. Um, and as you can imagine from a Shudder original horror film, not everything goes to plan. Um, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if it's not just Sean Baker that's like this. There's a number of people I've read really positive things about on this. I don't know. It's... It, for what it is, it's fine. It's 57 minutes long, which is okay. But the the whole principle of doing something on Zoom, I get why they've done it. It's not too dissimilar to doing something on found footage. And found footage horror for me has been done to absolute death. And I've never been a huge fan of it from the get-go. There's a handful, there's a handful of, there are a handful of good ones, don't get me wrong, but it's not what I'm here to talk about. I just found this, this really did drag, um, even over, a, over the 57 minute mark, like the, the Zoom thing, once you get over the novelty value of it, just wears off quite quickly. The novelty value wears off quickly. I just didn't, I don't know, It's. I, I don't know, it just didn't do it for me. It's a shame. There's a handful of nice moments, but it's just, for me, it's just a, just a rerun of a rerun of mediocre found footage films, really. I don't get the love. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't for me. Fair. Sounds fair. And didn't we didn't we give fairly like positive reviews to things like Unfriended and those kind of when it was Skype rather than Zoom or whatever that? Yeah, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed Unfriended. Um, 100% really enjoy even Blair Witch. Like um, I like Blair Witch. I liked Wreck. So it's not I'm not completely adverse to the found footage genre. I just yeah, it needs to be very, very good to get over. It's like ultimately the filmmaking language exists for a reason and static cameras are not why people make films. So, um, yeah, it needs to be very interesting to get over the um, to get over the visual limitations. This wasn't interesting enough for me. Fair. Um, I will open up then, I suppose, with one that I do think is quite good. So I'll try and be positive. Well, I won't, I won't need yeah. to try very hard. This one's Thunder Road. Paul, it's one that you've reviewed before, I believe. All right, this is the first film I've ever had this entire cinema to myself for. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so it's got, it's got a soft, soft, place, well, soft spot in my heart. soft spots in the heart, uh, I've got a soft spot in my heart, and that is my heart, listeners, for uh, Jocelyn DeBoer, who is in this and was also in Greener Grass, which I raved about on this show, and I just think more people need to see. So I'm talking about Thunder Road, but if you haven't checked out, that film was pe- basically written and brought to the screen and then acted by a pair of actresses, uh, one of which is Jocelyn DeBoer, who's also playing the now estranged wife of the lead in the film Thunder Road. Uh, Thunder Road is the the brainchild, really, of uh, Jim Cummings, who is both writer, uh, director, and star here. And it's really like a 
like a star making performance at least on the indie circuit I would say because you can see that he's poured so much into creating this sort of dysfunctional flailing character he's a police officer who can barely hang on to the badge he certainly can't hang on to his marriage possibly even less so his relationship with his child ultimately and he's just trying to stop himself screaming at people or crying or screaming whilst crying uh, I mean the film opens up with this sort of uh, virtuoso sequence at a funeral in which he does a <laughs> effectively a monologue to camera but of course to the gathered uh, folks at the funeral in which he just veers across the emotional scale from like manic to impassioned to emotionally vulnerable and all of this stuff rings true because the actors committed so hard to what he's doing so yes it's funny the movie is funny it's laugh out loud funny at times but it's so heartfelt as well that it's moving in ways that might surprise you I think so I really enjoyed Thunder Road it's a bit of a bit of a uh, what would I call it like a, a creeper for me it's just sort of crept up on me I think I've heard you talk about it before Paul but haven't really taken the time to dig it out I'm glad that I did and I, I guess I have to thank again the person I started with, Jocelyn DeBoer, for that because I was so blown away by Greener Grass that when I saw that she was involved in another project that was available to stream, I went for it. So yeah, I recommend it highly. It's on Netflix at the moment, actually, Thunder Road. Uh, check it out. It's just check Netflix, it out, yeah. people. Yeah, and Jim Jim Hoskin, if I remember rightly, liked. I think he liked the. Uh, I think he may have even heard the original review we did of it because I remember he liked Jim, the tweet Jim, from the show. Jim Cummings, which is a Jim you know, name drop. Jim Hoskins yeah. is the guy who made Dirty Strangler, yeah. uh, Greasy Strangler that, that I don't like. You are right. Yeah. I, I argued yeah. with someone else about that movie just this week. Uh, but carry on. We're not talking about it now. Uh, Paul Risker, what's next from Fright Fest? Yeah. There was. Um, I'm always hesitant when it comes to anthologies. They're often inconsistent. It tends to be a mixed bag. I was never a fan of VHS films. Uh, didn't like them from the very first one. Uh, I remember kind of sitting down to watch it and the hype and there were some good segments but overall I was very lukewarm. There was uh, one, uh, there was two anthologies that actually played at Fryfest this year and the one was Dark Stories and was actually recommended to me by one of the organisers. It's interesting because it actually really kind of offers a broadish range of the types of stories you can find within genre cinema. I mean, it goes from the first story, which is more of a family segment, to the very final one, which is kind of science fiction, horror, uh, paranoia. And I kind of what I found so interesting about it was just that kind of broad depth to it. It wasn't going for just one type of story or a few types of story. It was a, a really broad selection. What's so, what strikes me as so interesting about this is, on the one hand, that's positive, that's a good thing, but on another hand, we all have certain types of genre stories we like which we're more drawn to and I actually found myself more drawn to the more pure horror but there was of course only one of those so how am I, how am I meant to then feel about the rest and sorry Paul how many parts is this as an anthology is there... I believe there was five if I remember okay. correctly it was five or six I believe it was five so I really took to the one which was pure horror 
but how am I meant to feel about the rest? And that was a kind of question I kind of found myself asking as I kind of watched it, because whilst I appreciated some of those other stories, I was after more of that kind of typical kind of uh, segment, which I I typically like more. And I think it kind of really can sometimes showcase how we're very specific in our tastes. We can appreciate a broad range, but there's something which, you know, our hearts are with more than perhaps other types of stories. But I think it's definitely an anthology I'd recommend seeing. I think it's probably one of the most consistent ones I've seen in recent years. I think Wild Tales is still the benchmark. Um, But I would say this is probably up there as kind of the second. There's really nothing almost to fault with it. The only thing you can fault with it is it might not give you segment after segment, the type of story that you want. But actually, you can't really fault any of them. And the joining segments or the segment which kind of links all the stories together is a treat in and of itself as well. There's a little bit of kind of nasty comedy to it. And it's almost a thing which, when you look to something like The Strangers, and you always have some foreboding present knock on the door, and whoever's inside is in danger. And you've always wanted to see somebody knock on the door thinking they can intimidate whoever's inside, but actually whatever's inside is more intimidating. And this, you know, thread of dark stories finally kind of does that. And you don't know what's going to happen at the end, but you kind of get the gist that there's some kind of surprise and I kind of found it somewhat delightful. So I'd definitely say as an anthology, check it out, give it a go. Um, As I say, it's always one of those things of can you kind of just kind of stretch your kind of uh, tastes a little bit? Yeah, I mean, around these parts, Paul, if you say that it's second place to Wild Tales, then that's pretty high praise. So I reckon uh, people should look out for it for sure. Yeah. Uh, Paul, what have you got next? Yeah. Uh, so I've got um, Spree, which is a, a black comedy slash horror um, starring uh, Joe Keery, who people will know uh, from Stranger Things. Um, you may have seen the trailer for this. This is saying I don't particularly like found footage films, and I found the time to watch two of them this week. Um, this is slightly different in slightly different in concept, though. This basically is tells the story of an internet streamer. Um, so he's a pleasant character. Joe Keery's great in this. Just before I get into what I didn't like about it, Joe Keery's great. He's very very watchable. Um, you hate him, and you're meant to hate him, and that's great. So he's great. He's got. A, I think he's got a good future ahead of him. It's an interesting project to pick straight off the back of Stranger Things. So credit for him trying to do something. It's, immediately jumping into more interesting films how successful it is though i don't know i mean i'm just looking at the looking at the cover now of the thing and it's been described as american psycho for the digital age it's not that film um basically it it focuses around an internet streamer who's also a, a spree driver which spree may as well be uber or a rideshare driver um who decides to start live streaming him killing his passengers um uh, we've got David Arquette on supporting duty. Sasha Zamata, who's great in this as well, um, as support as a stand-up comic. She's really, really good. Um, but the film, for me, it just never it never quite finds an upper gear. I don't think it's quite as clever or as kind of as cutting as it thinks it is. Um, and it never quite finds an upper gear. And again, I've got to say, I think a lot of it comes down to the visuals. Like, they, re- they try with this. They do try and keep this visually interesting because he's got... He's got kind of cameras in every window, so he can fully stream. He can fully stream everything that's going on in his car, but it's still you're watching the camera through a camera, and it just I don't know. There's some car chase scenes that you know are not badly made. They're just not very in that format. They're just not very exciting. Like 
car chases are filmed in a certain way because it works like and, and it, like cinema is filmed in a certain way because it works and it makes things exciting so a lot of what you see here it is funny in places it's, it's blackly comic which i quite like but it's just never that exciting it never quite finds an upper gear for me to be honest it's, it's it's an interesting watch especially for fans of stranger things i think it's i don't think it's a bad career move for the guy at all um it's a it's a curio but not a great what one. you're trying to say is it's no nerve surely uh, but I wasn't a huge fan of Nerve, so it's it's I don't know it's it is Nerve. It's a better a par with Nerve for me. I, I'd say that's the best film uh, co-starring Machine Gun Kelly. Um, ne- next for me is uh, Ava. This one, oh, in a week of a palindromic feature review, I've got for you a palindromic popcorn review in Ava. And like, what more do I need to get me in the door on a movie than it's an action movie? It's Jessica Chastain. That's it. That's enough. Like signed, sealed and delivered. But it turns out, Paul, that that kind of isn't enough uh, for a couple of reasons. One of which is I think that this thing uh, directed by Tate Taylor um, is not particularly well handled in terms of particularly in terms of the action choreography. Like we've been spoiled recently with things like Atomic Blonde, particularly the John Wick movies. And of course, with the filmmakers there being so embedded in that world of stunt work, fight work and choreography that they are the absolute best, you know, the the, the very cutting edge of uh, the art, the craft. Here, not that. Uh, Some of these fight sequences are kind of disjointed. They're a little bit difficult to follow in that way that sort of badly shot action tends to be. And at the centre, you've got Jessica Chastain, who, for all of her being a great actress, has taken, it seems like, a series of not particularly great choices with her recent movies, at least in terms of the final results. She went on a great run. It seemed like, you know, success after success after success, both financially and critically. And it's kind of tailed off a little bit after the last few years, uh, over the last few years. And Ava's further proof of that, I guess. Also, I just don't buy Jessica Chastain as somebody who's able to kick your head in. She's she's got a kind of bird-like physicality to her, a kind of um, fragility to her that makes her, uh, f- by all means, um, intriguing, attractive, beguiling, elegant, but like badass? I don't think so. Uh, Sasha Luss, I looked up her name just before talking about this. Sasha Luss was the lead in the uh, Luc Besson movie, the last one, Anna another palindromic uh, palindromic title I'll, I'll point out but uh, <laughs> suffer from the same thing that you cast someone who looks in that case kind of like a model in this case kind of like I don't know a, a beauty for the ages and it doesn't mean that they're going to transfer over into action star I think Charlize Theron has kind of set the bar in that regard in recent years and and not yeah, everyone sure. can jump that bar. And unfortunately, I, I don't think Jessica Chastain can. Although it would have been better if she had been in a better film. I mean, I'll certainly give it that. Um, and, and Paul, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not above this. She wears a vest in the movie. So that's one star already. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's just kind of that, you know, second division action that is unfortunate for a star of that caliber, I think. And, and an actress of that ability as well. So that one's Ava. Um, check it out. Form your own opinion. Let me know why I'm wrong. Um, what else have we got? Paul Risker, have you got anything else from Fright Fest? Yeah, uh, there's a very good film, The Columnist. Again, another film I kind of was going to dismiss um, just basically because of the premise of violence and someone exacting revenge. And in horror genre cinema, they just sometimes it can just it 
can just be so gratuitous. And I think, I don't know whether you'd agree, but you get to a point where you so sen- you read a synopsis and the moment you get a sense of it's just someone angry, exacting revenge, you just start, the alarm bells of gratuitous violence start going off. And there's just nothing fun about that. There's just, there's no pleasure in it. Um, I did take a look at The Columnist, um, and I have to say I'm really glad I took the time to watch it. It's basically a columnist decides to start murdering uh, vile Twitter followers or people on Twitter who, uh, who, who are pretty nasty, make extremely vulgar, vile comments, threaten her safety. And it's one of those films where the lead actress it basically kind of it depends on her. And what she captures so effectively is a vulnerability, a certain normality. She's a mother, but she's also kind of dating another author. And yet when it comes to the killing, she captures this, I mean, it's a beautiful kind of rendition of kind of black comedy where I'd actually say if you're going to kind of start talking about black comedies to really single out, I would say The Columnist would definitely be one of those because it strikes a perfect balance of knowing how to have fun with violence, how to have funny with cruelty. It, it's just really kind of impressed me on that on, on that level. But there was, there was also a depth to it. Uh, I went back and took another look at actually and there were little things I picked up on on a, on a rewatch where you really get a sense of the psyche of people seem to think what you say on Twitter or social media isn't what you're saying in reality so you can hurt somebody via social media but not actually hurt somebody in reality and I thought that was kind of a really nice little touch that the film kind of struck and also the playful um balance in a way of in the end what kind of feels real versus what's not real is there kind of a dreamlike nightmare quality to it you seem to understand the logic of it until you get to the end and then it really does start to play around with how you can kind how you can manipulate people's impression how you can manipulate what people are seeing so it becomes a rather you know, interest. You can watch it a lot more simply than that, but if you want to kind of see something a little bit, you know, with a little bit more depth, it certainly opens itself up in that way. But again, it was similar to um, AV the Hunt. It raises alarm bells because of the idea of like, you know, a high level of violence. But it definitely kind of it. it it's not gratuitous in any way and actually does something quite uh, interesting in a very amusing way with it. Nice. Nice. I'm looking forward. That sounds right up my alley, I'll be honest. The other ones did as well because they're all horrors. I'm a big horror fan, but that sounds, yeah, that sounds really, really good. Sounds really good. Good. Um, I've got, is it my, is it my Yeah, it is indeed. I've yeah. lost track of, I've lost track of structure. Um, who knew? Um, so I've got, uh, I'm going to roll in two here. I'm going to roll in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey because I am so excited, so excited for the third Bill and Ted film. Um, I can't tell you 
I can't tell you any more than that, but I think it's going to be great. And I've no idea how I know that, but I'm very excited for it. Uh, but Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey are what I wanted to talk about today. I've rewatched two of my favourite films as a child, I'll be honest. Um, both, I think, both a lot of fun, both completely batshit crazy and kind of stand out as... Well, the Bill and Ted series is a one-off in terms of just how bonkers and out there it is. I'd forgotten just how silly these films get and how much fun they actually are. Personally, this is a controversial opinion, I know. I think Bogus Journey is the stronger of the two films. I think it has a stronger central narrative and a bit more direction to it. Um, and it's got death in it, who is William Sadler as death is is one of my favourite film characters um, in terms of sort of bit parts. He's brilliant. Yeah, it's, yeah. Bill and Ted, I, I loved them. I loved rewatching them. Loved them both. I thought they are a lot of fun. Um, and the chemistry between the two leads is fantastic. Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. Um, this is why another reason I'm very excited about Bill and Ted Three is because they are actually friends in real life and have been for many years since they met on the set of Bill and Ted. Since, since they met on the set of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So um, Keanu Reeves was in an interview saying the other day, like, so people walk past and see Bill and Ted having coffee, and he was like, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> it's cool um so yeah i'm super excited for bill and ted 3 i've got a feeling it might be the strongest in the series but we'll get to that in a future episode uh but yeah no very yeah, very excited very much enjoyed bill and ted's excellent adventure and bill and ted's bogus journey again and i would recommend anyone revisiting them before watching the film not to put you on the spot paul but did you tell me before it's something like the 24th of september the general release uh, okay 16th, I think. so yeah 16th, really yeah. not long at all to wait uh, yeah, we'll feature review it on the show, um, even though I know that I've been lukewarm in terms of my excitement levels for this uh, upcoming release. Rewatch, rewatch the first yeah. two first. It will help. Paul, oh, so to I be hear. honest, we've done this for a while. <laughs> Just for the look on your face, I need to give you the pleasure of reviewing a film that you're so excited about. So we've got a feature review it. There's no other way. Yeah, okay, um, thank you. <laughs> one that we did not feature review, and I don't think uh, that was the, the wrong move, is Lost Transmissions. Uh, incidentally, <laughs> this one opened the Cheltenham Film Festival, which also went online this year. Uh, but it is a, another attempt uh, that Simon Pegg has made to make a film in which he's a leading role that has nothing to do with sci-fi or geek culture. Um, and uh, as a... As, okay, I was going to say a serious role, but that is going to get me murdered. So I won't say that. I'll just say a dramatic role outside of that particular categorization this one lost transmissions places simon pegg as a record producer who clearly has seen better days he has reached really the top of the industry it seems like but at this point he is frequently or more frequently unreliable owing to the fact that he is suffering with schizophrenia for which he is medicated but is often reluctant uh, if not completely against uh, taking medication he is then uh, or he becomes intertwined with uh, the character played by Juno Temple who's an actress that I think I've talked quite a lot on this show about in terms of being someone that I think does take interesting projects does take risks they don't all pan out perhaps this might go into that category but he or she plays a uh, mild-mannered, quiet, almost um, nervous character who Peg's character is going to produce in the studio and on a sort of up, during an up, during a moment of great creativity, decides that he can make her into some kind of a star, but more a behind-the-scenes songwriter. In steps the other po person on the poster, uh, Alexandra Daddario, who does next to nothing in this film, but is a sort of... Um, 
a Katy Perry, maybe, kind of a pop star, sort of a polished pop star, who is going to have her songs written for her by the Temple character. And all the while, people around Peg's schizophrenic character, lead character, are trying to keep him under control, keep him on track and keep him in the studio long enough to get the work done. All of this stuff is not so far away from something like the setup to Her Smell, the Alex Ross Perry movie from last year, which I liked a great deal. But I just feel here like the script doesn't quite know what to do with these ideas. It doesn't quite know fully how to explore the terrain of mental illness that it's set out for itself at the film's uh, opening uh, and opening scenes. And then it also doesn't really know how to bring its characters together in a satisfying way. So instead, what we get is a sort of series of scenes um, including a particularly ill-judged sequence at a party with girls making out with each other in a pool that just fit is ill at ease in the middle of the middle of a movie like this that is self-consciously serious and it just never congealed into something that was satisfying or had any real dramatic or emotional heft for me which is unfortunate because you're dealing with such big and important issues and it doesn't have to be an issue film but then it needs to be a good piece of drama and I'm not sure that it's either of those things um, again as always other opinions are available this one is the problem is part of the problem that simon Pegg just isn't a strong enough actor to pull this kind of role off <laughs> sorry to jump on you jump in yeah. there but yeah i mean i've i yeah i i think i said this on the show like a, a few weeks ago maybe but and i've got nothing against simon Pegg. simon Pegg comes from you know my neck of the woods really and all power to him he's done absolutely incredibly with his career i mean incredibly from going back to spaced and big train all the way through to the blockbuster stuff that he's doing with tom cruise and others but as a lead actor outside of those movies the mission impossible movies and so forth i i'm yet to see a film where i thought he was really good i mean think about something we reviewed like that is bad he is bad there's nothing there's no redeeming features of inheritance in the slightest <laughs> yeah i yeah, I don't know. As a character actor, as a sort of um, you know supporting character actor, he I think has been good uh, in bits and pieces. But Simon Pegg's mm. too famous at this point to take those roles too often. So I don't know, man. Like I feel like I'm being down on someone that I should be propping up, and he doesn't need my propping up. The guy's absolutely smashed it. But like projects like this to me just don't don't really work. And it's not just Simon Pegg. I mean, Juno Temple is is pretty non-existent in the movie here alexander daddario gets a handful of scenes and doesn't do very much with them um yeah it's one of those and you know how, how i am paul like you know you take on material like this i mean what was it last year's worst film of the year a million little pieces trying to trying to yeah. take off uh, take on addiction <laughs> recovery like i think if you take on that stuff and it doesn't come off it it fails quite hard and i think that's yeah. that's how this felt to me that's lost transmissions um my third and final popcorn review is that the end of this bit i think so unless anyone's got anything to add no i mean i guess get get psyched up because um we're gonna go plowing into a feature review are we not well, after coming attractions, yes, we are. <laughs> You're very right. You're very right. I've got two yeah. hyped up already. In that case, let's take a little break. We'll come back with coming attractions right after this. So, back we are with coming attractions. Um, there's a lot to talk about. Well, yeah, we seem to be suddenly deluged with, with interesting film releases. Um, this is where we talk about the things that are coming out in the next week or so, um, either at the cinema or, in this case, on home release. Um, Pete, what have you got first for us? What have I got first for you in the section that you said you were yeah. going to lead, Paul? Um, I don't know. Okay. 
You well, tell me. If that's your attitude, then I've got this. I've got this to say to you. I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, which. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's gone dark. It's gone really, really dark. Uh, which is not only my current thoughts, but also uh, coincidentally, the name of a new Charlie Kaufman film that is debuting on Netflix this very day, actually, and I have seen it just before we've gone on air. Um, so we will be reviewing that next week. Um, so yeah, a new film from Charlie Kaufman for me always a reason to be excited. Um, if alter it applies to anyone, uh, it certainly applies to Charlie Kaufman. There's no doubt about that. Uh, guys, are you excited about this one at all? Paul. Yeah. I mean, excited, excited or interested. I think he's one of those people who you can't help but be interested by what he's going to do. But is is he at a point where he's got too much now? As we were talking uh, off air, has he got too much? Uh, creative control um, and I, you always think with these people actually keeping them on keeping a leash isn't a bad thing because imagination is a powerful thing but when it's allowed to run wild it can lead to projects or lead to stories that have moments which impress but overall leave you feeling somewhat lukewarm um, and as I was saying, you know, everyone thinks about people like Hitchcock and they think about him as this genius, but even he had to adhere to certain constraints. Um, and I just kind of feel like Kaufman's one of these people who's been given so much praise and seen as such an interesting person. And is he just now kind of able to be a bit indulgent and just do what he wants? And is that from, whilst he might be satisfied with that, are we going to just become less satisfied as time? I will reply with I will reply with no comment. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, I I was going to say, Paul, you do know we haven't got onto yeah. the bit about Chris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Well, I no, I totally understand what you're saying, Paul. I mean, I think that I. Well, I wanted to say this. The other day, I thought about Synecdoche, New York, and I just had to like take a little moment to gather my thoughts again. Um, I think that I agree with you that like unrestrained creativity or sort of unbounded creative control can often lead to problems. And maybe in the case of this film, it will. I'm, I'm yet to find out. Um, having said that, I really liked Anomalisa. Uh, I still think about Synecdoche, New York all the time. I think everything that Charlie Kaufman has turned his hand to has been in to my estimation at least good to to a film like Synecdoche New York which I, I will defend film. as, as absolutely hands down my way favorite I absolutely good. love that film it's great and and th there are things about the movie that I that I probably don't like that much and they're uncomfortable and that are kind of irritating but when it when he hits like emotional resonance like he does at the end of that film for me anyway not for everybody everybody's different I just think there are it's one of those things, isn't it? Like when someone is operating on those frequencies, you almost, or at least I almost accept indulging them because there will be that moment of brilliance, that flash of brilliance. And I'll live through the other stuff because we'll get there. I mean, God, we all listen to mid-career Radiohead <laughs> records. I mean, this is this is not unfamiliar to fans of this kind of thing. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm excited, although... As I think you acknowledged, uh, Paul Risker, I don't know if excitement yeah. is really the right emotion. For and to a, contradict myself as well, it's, in a way, I, I still feel I still feel this way about 
and this was in a way because I was brought up well I kind of when I was in my college years or after my college years I spent a lot of time reading Roger Ebert reviews and one of the things that I always loved about Ebert was he would say he might point out the film is average but he would also point out there was just maybe two moments in the film which are so brilliant or so beautifully done that you need to watch it uh, I just feel like Kaufman could be one of those people who is on the verge of maybe just I don't know imploding and sorry Paul I thought you said you hadn't seen it <laughs> <laughs> but, um, kind of yeah imploding but at the same time you will like you, like uh, Pete says there's going to be moments where you're not going to be able to deny it and that always becomes the interesting quandary uh, for any, all of us as individuals, we have to kind of answer that question then of like, well, are you happy to take a limited moment of a limited series of brilliant moments in something that might not work in its entirety, or do you want something that works in its entirety? Part of me still sometimes feels like I'd rather take the few brilliant moments because often films which do work in their entirety it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to make an all-powerful impression and actually stay with you for the years to come. And actually, the entire point of a film is that it should stay with you and you should remember it and you should want to... Because you always remember a film for moments. Robert Rodriguez always spoke about that. When you think about watching a film again, you don't think about the film from start to finish. You think about moments. And if you can't recall moments with a certain clarity then the film hasn't worked. I, I'm, I'm loath somewhat with Paul uh, Anderson uh, on the on the pod today to segue in to something else about football. But are you aware of that documentary, Zidane, that was scored by Mogwai that came out about 20 years ago? And and so the, the documentary just follows Zinedine Zidane around a football field, who, of course, was a, a genius on the field. And for the probably, I would say, 80 minutes of the match in which he is watched in every moment, he does next to nothing. I mean, he walks around quite slowly. He looks around the field, he scans for opportunities, and then there are just a couple of moments in the game, one of which is a beautiful bit of skill, uh, perhaps more than one, and one of which is a moment, a flash of sudden violence, unexpected violence, or maybe expected if you followed his career closely. And I think the reason why I mention that is just to, you know, to connect with what you're talking about, Paul, that with someone like Charlie Kaufman, he might be walking around sort of gazing into the middle distance for 80 minutes, but then all of a sudden he does something just so incredible that you're not going to forget it. So I feel like we're reviewing that yeah. film and two of us yeah. haven't even seen it yet. You're not far off the money. I'll be honest, gents, you're not oh, that far okay. off the money. <laughs> Maybe this is our yeah, new format, right? You, you say yeah. a film we haven't seen yet and two of us haven't seen it and then you yeah. tell us whether yeah. you were right at the end. What uh, the else next have we thing got? that's uh, out this week, uh, I'm quite impressed to see this has got a wider release, actually. This is a French film called Les Miserables. Uh, nothing to do with the musical, from what I can tell. This looks to be a very gritty um, kind of Streets of Paris drama. Um, the only thing I can say that it looks a bit like is La Haine, to be honest. Um, and that quite excites me, because La Haine was brilliant. Um, this is directed by a director and writer I'm not familiar with, someone called Lajli. Um, if I've butchered that name, then I do apologise. I likely have. Um, but yeah, if you look at the trailer, it just it looks like a very very hard hitting, very well shot, uh, very well put together um, urban crime drama set on the streets of Paris. Initial buzz has been good. I think it looks to have reviewed very positively, uh, and I'm off to see it at an Odeon of all places uh, tomorrow night. 
So yeah, I'm excited about that one. Definitely talk about that more on next week's show. By all means. So this is, like you say, completely separate from staged production. Yes, as far as it, certainly my understanding of it, if you watch the trailer, it bears, it certainly bears no resemblance. Whether they've whether they've staged the story within the urban crime drama or not, I don't know. I'm not that familiar with the story of Les Mis. I'll be honest, it's not my specialist topic. Um, maybe they've. Yeah, maybe I mean, it's got to be a direct uh, reference but, at, at minimum, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, it looks really, really good from trailers. It looks, it looks like a really, really strong drama. Initial buzz has been good. Um, critical reviews have been good. So yeah, I'm quite excited about this one. And yeah, maybe it's a lack of releases, but it's nice to see some world cinema readily Absolutely. available. To be honest, so yeah, it's good. Are we through? Uh, X Men: New Mutants. I think we talked about that last week actually, because it was a bank holiday release. But that goes wide this week, which I'm intrigued to see. From what I've read, intrigued to see the X Men franchise go out with even worse of a whimper than the Dark Phoenix, um, than the Dark Phoenix films. But we will see. Uh, I kind of feel that I have to see New Mutants because it's been delayed so for such a long time. I'm intrigued to see what happened to it and why it's been delayed. So that's out wide this week. Um, but that's it from me, unless anyone's got anything to add that they know is coming up? No, nothing uh, that I can kind of think of. Uh, the only thing I'd stress is um, there is a, a limited edition of Nick Rogue's um, walkabout out at the moment, and I think that's kind of, you know, that's oh, nice. restricted to so many. I think it comes with a book, the original source novel, uh, some essays. Um, I mean, walkabouts are kind of classic. So again, just in terms of there will be only a limited amount of time for people to pick that up. Uh, it's got some commentary tracks on there. It's got uh, Luke Rogue who plays the young boy in it. Uh, it's like it's a kind of masterpiece of 70s cinema. It's as timely as ever. It'll always be a timely piece of filmmaking. Um, and yeah, so it's like only available on limited edition. Um, so definitely worth Blu-ray, so worthwhile picking up if uh, people can. Uh, well, that is the end of Coming Attractions. This time, Pete, we will be back with a feature review of uh, Christopher Nolan's Tene. So we are back. Here it is. Paul, this uh, film from the gentleman going by the name of Christopher Nolan is the kind of thing that a younger version of this podcast would have dedicated an entire show to and not even had any other sections. If you recall, one of the first things we did was an interstellar special. Do you remember? It was way back when we did a deep dive into Interstellar. I think we did, what, 90 minutes on yeah, Interstellar Yeah, how, how times have changed. Uh, um, maybe we'll do yeah. 90 minutes now. Yes. Strap yourselves in. <laughs> we, we won't. Uh, but uh, we are talking, of course, of Tenet, which I think everybody is aware of now. It's been this film that has almost been seen as a sort of bellwether for the condition of cinema. If this thing could make it out on general release, then maybe cinema could be saved. Maybe Christopher Nolan, as he would probably want, would quite literally be the same of cinema. Uh, whether that has indeed been the case is, you know, to be uh, discovered, I guess, as, as time moves on. But what we have got here is a review of the film itself. As you may or may not be aware, Tenet is a palindrome, first of all. It is a word that reads both uh, the same from front as it does from back. Yes, Hold on, I what? know. Now you look at it again, it's like a magic eye. You start to see it if you look at it for a while. Yeah. Oh, now I get the film. That's now it. I an, understand. An eagle-eyed uh, <laughs> cineast may have considered that the title might have something to do with the structure of the film, knowing even the cliff notes on Christopher Nolan, that could be almost guaranteed. And indeed, that's what we have. We have another elaborate 
maybe not puzzle box, some people don't like the term and I'm not sure it should be applied here, but a sort of elaborate clockwork imagining from the mind of Christopher Nolan that involves the running of time both chronologically and reverse chronologically. More on that in due course. At the centre of it, a character played by John David Washington, of course the son of Denzel Washington, here in a leading role, who is tasked with I mean, what is he tasked with? Stopping, Stopping things happening? World, I maybe? guess. Which is in the trailer. Yeah, we don't, we don't saving want to, the world. We don't want to tread into spoiler territory here. But yeah, saving, saving the world. Yeah, I mean, the film doesn't feel embarrassed about saying that he's going to save the world with a straight face. So we will also say he's tasked with saving the world like a regular old superhero. Uh, but of course, within a Christopher Nolan movie, that is not going to be... Um, whiz bang super heroics at this point because he's moved on from batman what instead we have is a more serious polished action masterwork question mark um more on that just after we've heard a little clip all i have for you is a word tell it it'll open the right doors some of the wrong ones too Use it carefully. So yeah, that clip kind of sets the mood for the piece. You will have seen the trailers. You probably get where this is coming from. So it always didn't need us to set the mood. Hyped would be one word for this film. And yeah, for a multitude of reasons. Um, now, I would normally say that I, I, I am aware of Nolan's weaknesses as a filmmaker. And I've been aware of them for many years. They haven't normally detracted from my enjoyment of his films, despite me knowing they were there. Until... Tenet. <laughs> I'll be honest, until Tenet. Like, I'm going to come out the gate. Like, I have some big problems with this film. Straight out the gate, I have some big problems with it. The set pieces are incredible. They look fantastic. The film is incredibly well shot. The sound design, there's some issues with, but mostly when it works, it sounds great. Film looks and sounds great. It's an incredible piece of spectacle cinema. You can have an incredible soundtrack. You can have beautifully shot set pieces and you can have strong performances, but you don't give a fuck about the set pieces if they don't establish characters. And this film, its biggest problem is it does not establish characters at all. Like, um, uh, Robert Pattinson's character, Neil, he just appears on screen and you just, right, he's there now. There's no backstory to him. I mean, they even call John David Washington's character the protagonist. It's like, come on, Nolan. Like, come on. It's like he's, it's like he, it's like he's toying with us. And any thoughts on that, guys, well, before we get into it further? I was just going to say, Paul, Tenet may be a palindrome, but Takedown certainly isn't. And I didn't expect you to come right out of the gate flinging bungalows at Christopher Nolan's head, but that's what we've got. Uh, Paul, wh where's your temperature on Tenet? And, and are you going to come out as ferociously as... Well, I... Yeah. I think there's a lot, what I, a lot of what he says is actually true. Um, I think he... Yeah, it is spectacle. But I think one of the interesting things is I found myself admiring the film as a construct. I appreciating the actors because I think the cast is is excellent. I I agree with his point about characters. I tend to kind of be too aware of them as performers, admiring their performances, admiring the dialogue rather than actually investing myself like this might be off the off the track a little bit but i watched uh, tesla uh, with ethan Hawke recently and 
there's an attention to history in that, but one of the things there's a playfulness where they actually have like a touchscreen phone in the film. So in the 1800s, you've got a touchscreen phone, um, Tesla singing a song by Tears for the, uh, by the band Tears for Fears. Um, and it's so kind of playful, but one of the things I admired about it was I connected with that character Ethan Hawke was playing. I really felt the emotion of a character. And I use that as an example because that's the exact opposite to how I felt about this film. I admired it as practitioners at work, but not as an experience in which I could really, truly emotionally kind of invest. And for me, if you can't do that, a film falls short. And Nolan has been great for me at getting you to invest in characters, care about characters, and really connect with them in some way. And he really falls short here in a way that I mm. I find kind it's of surprising. It's interesting you mentioned uh, just a, a moment ago in the last section, Paul, um, Roger Ebert. And Roger Ebert, of course, famously said this thing about um, one of the great qualities of cinema being that it is an empathy machine. It allows you to live the lives of other people and empathise with the situations that they're in. And, and I completely agree with you on the film that it feels like you're watching it and i and i and i want to say again because i don't think it's the first time we've had this kind of thing from christopher nolan far from it but you're watching like a like a chessboard of pieces being moved around at the director's whim which in some you know in some ways that's an undeniable part of a director's job but at the same time yeah where is where's the humanity paul where's the humanity i do, i just i don't yeah. I, I yeah. don't want to come out and do a review of the film and just sort of repeat a stuff that I've said before about Chris Nolan sort of being bloodless and lacking a human beating heart. But it does feel that way more than ever with the movie. And and once we get into the real meat, the real technical like wizardry of this thing, because it does get it goes from sort of spectacular to kind of some other plane of technical brilliance. But once you get there that cold with your blood running so kind of cold in your veins it's hard not to sort of sit back and go like well well done yeah you you pulled that off i mean you technically did do it like round of applause but i wanted my heart to be there too i wanted my my blood to be pounding in my veins and instead that's not the case and i just want to tag on before i throw back to paul anderson that um i i would contend that john david washington isn't very good in this film paul uh, I don't know. I, just, I don't necessarily have a problem with performances. Uh, yeah, I echo what I, again, kind of what I said before. It's just like I kind of found, some, found myself thinking I should find this exciting and I don't, and I should find this exciting and I don't. And it does look beautiful. Like it is a te- and again, like much much in the same ways with Dunkirk. Well, most of all of his films are an incredible technical exercise. I just think maybe it's time for someone else to do the writing and let him direct. Like I, I just really do think I do really do think that's the case here. And I think as well, like the the whole premise of the film, like. If I hear someone say, oh, you just didn't get it, like, I will come at them because it's just not true. Like, it's almost it's almost like he's written this to be deliberately obtuse. And it's almost like he's laughing at the audience when, like, when certain characters go, like, you see it in the trailer, it was like, are you keeping up yet? And it's just like, there's just like, you've got this, you've got this awesome opening in the Opera House. The Opera House road's fantastic. Then you've got a solid like twenty minutes of this is time inversion. Now have a word, and then and then crack on. Like no, I'm sorry, I need a bit more explanation as to what time inversion is. If you're telling me that I'm supposed to buy that this is happening, like with Inception, like this just felt to me almost like like a 
in a way like a bargain basement inception um like the the premise i thought was inception is again has been widely regarded by a lot of people as a difficult film to follow i didn't find inception difficult to follow if you paid attention I'll be honest, I did find Tenet difficult to follow, and I'm not alone in that. There's been a number of other critics that have said they find Tenet difficult to follow. It's almost as if he's written it in such a way that he makes you go and see it twice, so it doubles its box office take, but that would be very cynical of me. Um, any thoughts on the plot, guys? Where do you stand on that? Um, is it me just not paying enough attention, it, or, or was it It may be a sort of shallow point, and it may be one that, that I have ill-researched, that's guaranteed, but... Is it not the case that some of the better character writing that exists in Nolan films is the films in which he's either adapted work from his brother, Jonathan Jonathan Nolan, or has written in tandem with him? Because I'm talking here about the screenplay for Memento, uh, for example, uh, was the two of them also for The Prestige, which is probably the last time that I felt really sort of positively to what I mean that sounds harsh for you know maybe the defining mainstream director of our generation but I think the prestige of the last time I was the person sort of standing on the soapbox and telling everybody how great Chris Nolan was rather than now where I I feel like I I perform this other role which is sort of swimming slightly against the tide and it sounds like you guys are a bit as well in terms of people gushing about the the brilliance of all this spectacle i i don't know and i mean i i kind of hated the end of um the end of um inception uh, for example um and and kind of the some of the clever clever stuff when it isn't as clever as it thinks it is just really gets on my nerves i don't know um and, and maybe that was slightly less the case with tenet but it, it something about it felt both hyper expensive and sort of deluxe and then also weirdly cheap and dated and I don't know if you know what I mean and I I would sort of sum this up by um, something we mentioned when we did the preview on it Paul if you look at the poster for this movie it doesn't look in keeping with the kind of budget and prestige that someone like Chris Nolan holds at this point it's sort of a lopsided new metal from the year 2003 type thing with sort of matrix text matrix font on it I don't I don't know, man. I don't know where we're going with this. What, wh- where does Chris Nolan go next? I mean, is it is it going to be another serious one next? Are we going to have to go back to historical events that are going to be... And what are we doing with time? Because we've done, like, you know, dreams within dreams within dreams. We've done time sequences that all converge on the same point but last different lengths in terms of screen time. We've now done time that runs both chronologically and counter-chronologically. Like... Surely there's a limit to the number of things that you can do with time. As someone said on Twitter, and I enjoyed it, they said, Does, can somebody tell Chris Nolan that no matter how many movies he makes about time, time's not going to sleep with him? It's <laughs> a good shout. That's a good, that's a good one. Uh, Paul, where, I mean, where do you stand on where do you stand on A? Is it hard to follow? And B, I guess, what, what does Nolan do next after this? Would you say you were disappointed with this? Because I, I was, I'll be honest. As much as it's technically very competent, I I was let down by this one. I think it's the first, yeah, for sure. I think the problem for me is it was the first film I saw coming out of kind of lockdown. So for me, there was just that getting back in a cinema, sitting in front of a big screen. And I think I could have watched anything and, you know, I kind of would have been a little bit more forgiving towards it because I just enjoyed the experience of being back in the cinema. But no, it, it is a, it, it is a hard film to follow. And I feel like Nolan is, I think he's being a little naughty in a way because there is something with storytellers where you have, there are some unwritten rules you should play by. 
uh, like twists shouldn't just come out of nowhere. They should be kind of, there should be a logic to where they come from. You give the audience a chance to kind of see it. It's like in a crime drama, you give them a chance to work out who the killer is. With this, I feel like if you're kind of trying to work it out as you go along, then you're not really kind of investing in it as a film. You're not really investing, you don't have any chance to actually invest in it on a character kind of level, even if the characters are fairly weak to some extent. I just feel like it's not a puzzle box. I think it's just a filmmaker who's almost created a you know, postgraduate or doctoral dissertation. And I think he's beginning to forget what cinema's meant to be. And he's so lost within ideas. And maybe that kind of, not a, there's not enough restraint now for him. And he's able to do well, what he wants. Auteur, but actually... With, another auteur with, he must have almost complete creative control now. We're just surrounded by, yeah. yes, and no one says, no, Christopher, yeah. maybe wind that in a bit. <laughs> Exactly. And he's just too enamoured now with ideas and he's forgetting the kind of point that you have to give pleasure to an audience. You have to please an audience. You can't you can't go off on these big tangents and make it confusing because I was watching it and he, you know, not that, I mean, not far into it. I was thinking I need to see this a second time. Um, I might need to see it a third time. Also, the fact is this is cinema. The, the expense of a cinema ticket, if this was on Netflix or you had a physical copy of it and you could go back and watch it as many times as you wanted, then there's a certain fair play to that. But if you want to go back and watch this film again to try and piece it together and really get your head around it, it's costing people, it's asking people to fork out a lot of money. And I think I do think there's kind of a certain... Like Nolan's one of these people who's championing in cinema, but actually now it's beginning to feel like there's a real kind of capitalist, um, exploit, exploitative kind of quality to him as a filmmaker. I don't mean to be cruel about Nolan because I do like him. I think he's a decent person, but what he's created here, there's certain questions we could I, throw I agree, yeah. Sort of maybe it was just me being cynical. Sorry, Pete. Well, I was just going to say, isn't that the most damning fucking thing about the whole movie, though? Exactly what you say, <laughs> that as you're going through the movie, you think, and you get towards the end, and you think, I haven't really followed what's happened here. I need to go back. Oh, look, it's a big meta point that you've made about the experience of your protagonist with the experience of your audience member. Well done. That's so smart and so fucking irritating. And, and, now, <laughs> and now we have to go back and go through it and then the events will make sense the second time around and you're right also Paul what you said if Charlie Brooker made a film like this and it was thrown out on Netflix as a kind of Black Mirror episode that required repeat viewings not only would that be possible and accessible but it would also be funny and one thing that Chris Nolan is allergic to is having even a millisecond of levity in any of this material of late where is that I understand that we're dealing with serious issues and the end of the world and time and values and violence but put in some levity there the best action movies have moments of levity they have light and shade not just this big thudding darkness over everything all the time sort of metallic shades and darkness and clouds and doom and gloom and and low rumbly voices and a score that winds me up i mean yeah paul i feel like i came into this feeling slightly lukewarm about this film and now i've got sort of 
quite hot blooded about the fact that I don't like it. I think I I thought of it as a sort of three star effort, and, and maybe I'll come out of it. I mean, I, I would there. I would agree with that in terms of in terms of like the technical nature of it. Well, the other thing I wanted to add is what the fuck are Warner Brothers playing at? They released this. I saw this in the cinema. Complained to Odeon. Got a great. I got an email back about half an hour later at half past eleven when I got in to say that the Odeon manager had looked into the problem, which was incredible customer service. Don't get me wrong. Warner Brothers put this out on certain 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 places you can see it in scope and other places you can see it in flat. So if you see it on IMAX, it will look great. If they on a normal cinema screen on at least two screens in the Bath Odeon, it was letterboxed on all sides. It was like watching Tenet on a postage stamp. You'd lost about thirty percent of visible screen to bordering Tenet. And like this is not how Nolan wants this film shown. No. There's no way this is like no, but unless Paul, they want me to go and see it again in IMAX. I yeah, guess, Paul, but. as as Paul Risky was saying, he wants you to give him more money. So get yourself in the IMAX and watch it again. <laughs> but yeah, that is not the way to present a film like this. Like but it was like watching it on a letterbox. It would have looked better on a home on a home presentation, which was poor. And it's and it's not Odeon's fault, it's a hundred percent Warner Brothers for release. In certain cinemas, they presented it in both formats. Which is bizarre. Like, do not present a film in flat format, especially not that film. And and what? Um, sorry, Paul. What you said before, uh, Paul Risker, that is uh, about cinema and films remembered for moments. For me, if I take a quick look in my memory bank through the Chris Nolan back catalogue and think, what are the moments? They're the moments like the injection situation that happens in Memento between the husband and wife. They're moments like uh, Batman in Batman Begins declaring that. I am Batman. These moments of sort of personal triumph, revelation or character interactions. And those feel almost entirely absent in this movie. So what am I going to remember from it? Like, yeah, remember that bit where they had a battle forwards and also backwards at the same time? I mean, perhaps. Which ultimately doesn't really make much sense if you don't, if you actually, if you thought about that and took that apart, it doesn't make a great deal of also, sense. Also, can I just say one final thing on this, which is that uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, I think it was, did that really good um, heist sequence, like moving vehicle heist sequence, yeah. right? It feels too soon. It feels like you're almost biting their material with what they do in this movie, as much as I it's mean, well if you staged. Want to compare, if you want to compare big budget action films to big budget action films, then Mission Impossible Fallout is one of the greatest ones of the last few years, if not all time. And it has and some fucking levity in it as well. Though. But it has some levity, it has characters, and it has set pieces that are more than a match for the stuff that you see in Tenet, absolutely. But in terms of the question you asked, where does Nolan go next... I always remember Scorsese saying, you know, I want to go back to the streets. I want to make low-budget films. At the time, Weinstein would have just given him the money. He could have done it. He wasn't able to go back. Um, it's hard. It is hard to go back because we tend to move forward. I almost feel like this is a really interesting point for Nolan because I feel like this is a nice film in a way to follow up with Dunkirk because it takes his ideas to a whole new level. It doesn't work, but I feel you're at a breaking point where you either reinvent yourself as a filmmaker or you need to put the camera down and just not make any more films. Carpenter hung around way too long. He had a great streak. The Coen brothers had a great streak. It's almost like if you can't reinvent yourself, maybe going back to the stuff like Insomnia, Memento, even the prestige, just put the camera down and stop because you're right. This film almost, you know, presents you as an, a filmmaker of ideas at a breaking point. Sorry, Paul, just to 
just to jump in, this felt like I don't know if anyone's seen it. The honest trailers of Chris, the Christopher, the honest trailer of every Christopher, every Christopher Nolan film ever is very funny if you haven't seen it. This felt like it could be Tenet felt like it could be like a piss take of Christopher Nolan. Like it's all of his strengths as all of his weaknesses in equal measure. Like it was so Christopher Nolan that you'll uh, totally agree with you. Like, does he just yeah. become a parody of himself? Yeah. I, yeah. I, where does he go? And, sorry, and go that's ahead. That's the Paul. sad thing, bro. Yeah, but, but that's the sad thing because I remember seeing Insomnia. And I said to people at the time, this is one of the next great filmmakers. And I feel like we've seen somebody yeah. make such an impact. And the what he did with Batman, the way he embraced themes and the ideas. And it just feels like now you're watching somebody kind of, you know, break, fracture under their own kind of, their own skill. And I just hope, like I say, he can either reinvent himself or he bows out. And I don't want to see him bow out in a way because I think he's talented, but he's got this immense challenge now. Can you somehow rise above, you you know, the very thing which is crippling you? Mm. I'm, I've done a couple of football segues, so I'm not going to shy away from this one. It reminded <laughs> me, thinking about this, of what a, a music journalist wrote about the band Slipknot some years ago uh, which I'm sure you'll understand in relation to Nolan and it was simply when you emphasize everything you emphasize nothing and without that basic sort of play of light and shade things lose impact when you make a metal band that has nine members all ferociously pounding their instruments what you end up getting is something that adds up to about three members because everything else is sort of undiscernible noise and I feel a little bit that way. Um, Chris Nolan is the slipknot of filmmaking. That's the the pull quote for the poster. Uh, also, <laughs> this guy is so powerful in the industry that he's manipulated the Metascore to, of course, be 69. So it reads both ways, whether it's up or down. I mean, it's just incredible. Working on a higher plane. Uh, Paul, how do we round out a review like this? Um, I don't know. Uh, I was disappointed. I'll be honest, and I'm norm I'm normally a huge Nolan fan. I respect the fact that Nolan's brought brains back to blockbusters. That's the one thing I've always liked about him. He's bought he's bought brains and intelligence back to big budget filmmaking, which is great. Um, but my hopes now lie with Denny Villeneuve and June for my big cinema my big cinema release of this year. Um, it, Tenet was one of my most anticipated releases. It's let me down, I'll be honest. My word, Paul, that's a that's an incredible little reference that I want to jump on. Because you mentioned Denis Villeneuve. And of course, think about Arrival. Arrival's a film with an incredibly complex central idea that left me crying when the... All of Nolan's strengths and none of his weaknesses. That's because there was a heart and there were characters <laughs> and there were big ideas, not just math ma mathematical equations. And yeah, and just um, uh, touching finally on something that, that Paul said as well. When you mentioned, Paul, that the first thing you've seen back at the cinema is this one. And so you had some sort of, um, you know, it, it, sort of a good faith approach to, to the movie. The first thing I saw back in the cinema after the lockdown was Proxima, the Alice Winokur movie, and reviewed it very positively on this show. And I suppose... The Chris Nolan film, for me, plays all the worse when compared with something like that that has such a heart to it, I think. So, yeah. What's your final thoughts, Paul? Um, I, two things. I think Ad Astra's a really underrated recent film. I think it's got a great heart to it. The uh, relationship between a father and his son and really kind of how do you keep 
going on? How do you continue to strive forward? And I think in a world in which mental health is becoming more of an issue, I think actually this big sci-fi film, which does have a human heart, really can tap into the struggle facing so many people. Uh, the other thing I think kind of, there's something David Mame said uh, about a film isn't about ideas and themes, it's about what characters want. And I think it's like what Paul was saying, there's a lack of character. And it's when we spoke about, you spoke as well about this, Pete, the moments, what do you remember from this film? The characters really don't want anything or anything that they do want doesn't really hit an emotional nerve. It's very kind of super... She, uh, Elizabeth Dubicki's character, wants a divorce. She wants freedom from her husband. But it feels quite emotionally exploitative. He wants to save the world. It's some kind of like, I don't know, can you say it's like some young boy's fantasy? It's It's very superficial. There's just nothing there. And I think that kind of idea of what Mame was saying perfectly captures in some ways what we've all said about this film. Mm, and I mean, we haven't even touched on and we don't need to dig into it right now as we wrap this thing up. But I mean, the fact that Chris Nolan clearly still can't write women. Yeah. I mean, he can't. Yeah. I mean, he, he can't. Yeah. And again, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like Elizabeth Debicki. She's perfectly good here. But the, the role itself and the writing is lacking mm. i think um and robert pattinson's good here i like robert pattinson i hope he gets yeah. well soon yeah he's great yeah he's great in this yeah absolutely probably the highlight for me i think his performance mm. is superb here but yeah I, yeah it's just it's just yeah it's, it's a shame I, I kind of yeah I, as i said i've been possibly an apologist for nolan's weaknesses for too long now but the, this has even tipped me ever so slightly mm. over the edge i'll be honest <laughs> well uh let's end on a positive note paul we usually end <laughs> on the section known as credits in which we can give credit to anything that we like out of the world it doesn't have to be films it can be books it can be songs it can be video games it can be whatever you like paul uh, i've thrown this on you and i don't know in advance whether you have something in mind this is paul anderson of course do you have a credits for this week I do. Uh, Death Stranding, uh, the game that everyone bemoaned for being a dull walking simulator, is in fact quite an interesting walking simulator, and I'm really enjoying it. This is the Hideo Kojima game that launched late last year, uh, one of the one of the sort of late in life PS4 exclusives. It's an incredible game, uh, incredibly beautiful game. It's introduced me to the band Low Raw, who are really good. Um, they feature quite heavily on the soundtrack, as do churches, which is cool. Um, and yeah, I'm, it's a very different game. It's not. I think people are just disappointed that it's not. It's unusual to have a sort of triple A title where you don't just have to shoot things, but I'm rather enjoying it and I really like the change of pace. So that would be uh, Death Stranding, would be my credits for the week. Here, uh, my credit for this week has to be a follow up on a credit from a few weeks back, I guess. That's the fact that Seb Deliza's album's been released. I don't know if people would remember, but I talked about she put out new singles for the first time since her last record, full length record, which came out in 2017, Ison. The new one is called Shabrang, um, and it's this really kind of delicate, ethereal, fairly gloomy, fairly existential record about um, trying to come to terms with her position in the world of course Sev de Lisa is this interesting character who's emerged um, from Dutch and Iranian background um, once I think as an 18 or 19 year old playing on the Dutch national basketball team and now finds herself as this kind of yeah as I say sort of mysterious multi-talented singer songwriter that I've got a lot of time for I don't think she's getting enough 
you know, buzz right now. That's going to change. It's going to change and it's probably changing around the release of this record. I know she's planned dates for next year in April. If we're able to go to stuff next April, then I might get myself to London for that uh, UK part of that tour. But yeah, Sev Deleuze's new record uh, is called Shebrang and it's out now. You can get it on like Spotify and all those kinds of places. Uh, Paul, anything to add? You don't have to put anything yeah. in. Yeah. We have put you on the spot. I prepped you for every other section and forgot yeah, about this one. Yeah, this is sorry. on me. <laughs> I mean, I just kind of recently, I, I didn't realise Ethan Hawke had written um, any books. I didn't realise he was actually a novelist. And I actually picked up, uh, like, one of his books. I kind of, I'm always on the lookout for kind of, um, you know, books, um, you know, because I'm always trying to get, I'm trying to get back into doing some short story writing. And I've been kind of looking for some kind of uh, maybe interesting voices that I haven't come across, uh, you know, before. And having kind of seen Tesla and um, even all plays plays him in the film, I happened to look up uh, the actor and I found out that he'd actually written some novels. So I kind of picked up this um, this kind of second novel of his and it's uh, really interesting because I was looking at it and it really does feel like it's the words of an actor, it's the prose of an actor, somebody who's played character, somebody who's read kind of scripts. It doesn't kind of have that sound of, you know, you know, somebody who's either behind the camera or just simply tells stories. And I thought it had a really kind of interesting flavour. What's it called, sorry, did you say? uh, Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday, okay. Yeah, and it's just kind of interesting because it kind of, it does feel like he's got his own uh, distinct style. And I think there's always something refreshing to kind of, especially with uh, prose, to realise there are so many different ways you can write uh, the words that you can point to a character's kind of uh, mouth. And there is no right or wrong way to actually tell a story. And whether that's in cinema or whether that's in literature, um, even music, there's no right or wrong way to actually um, compose. It's all about does it work and actually does he have a kind of individual voice or does he have some kind of personality or character so kind of only read this beginning of it but it's made a really positive impression and actually revealed a new side to somebody i've admired for a long time which is always uh, a treat good good that sounds good let me check that out nice Hey, Paul, I tell you what's a treat. A treat is when we go on social media and find that somebody's written us a message or commented on one of the things that we've done. That yeah, that's the kind of stuff that people do at the end of the podcast, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean, we are available for further discussion through the Twitter platform at Stranger Cinema, but obviously on the Facebook, on the Instagram as well. Get in touch if you want. Don't have to. Um, but at the same time, we will be back in due course. And that due course, Paul, with all being well, yes. will be about one week. Um with a feature review of the new Charlie Kaufman. We've reviewed already. Yeah, yeah. If you had the pre-review, uh, if you if you like what you heard, you can get more of that next time. But all, obviously, all the regular sections of the show will be back next week. Um, from the three of us, uh, well, at least I can speak for myself. It's goodbye for this thank week. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Yeah, thank you very much. Goodbye. Shut up and sit down.